Who really took the Lindbergh baby? Who is the real D.B. Cooper? And what actually happened on Flight 305? Today, we're looking at three infamous crimes that we'd always heard of, but didn't really know a lot about until now. Maybe you can relate. Welcome to True Crime Recaps, the podcast. This is where you're going to get twice the crime in half the time every week. Today, our countdown includes the puzzling case of hijacker D.B. Cooper, the body on Somerton Beach, and the Lindbergh baby. Let's start with the most well-known unsolved mystery in FBI history, not to mention its longest-running investigation of all time. This is the story of hijacker D.B. Cooper. On the day before Thanksgiving in 1971, a man calling himself Dan Cooper walked up to the Northwest Orient Airlines counter in Portland, Oregon, and put down cash for a one-way ticket to Seattle on flight number 305. Eyewitnesses described him as a totally average-looking white man with brown hair and brown eyes, about 6 feet tall, 175 pounds, in his mid-40s. He was wearing a neatly pressed suit with a black tie, white shirt, and mother-of-pearl tie clip. While he waited for the flight to take off, he ordered a bourbon and soda and smoked a cigarette, Raleigh's. Shortly after takeoff, around 3 p.m., he tried handing a note to the flight attendant, but she ignored it, assuming he was trying to pass her his phone number. But he repeated his request, saying, Miss, you better look at that note. I have a bomb. The note asked her to sit with him and write down this list of demands to show the captain. He wanted $200,000 in $20 bills. He called it, quote, negotiable American currency. That amount would be over $1 million today. He also needed four parachutes and a fuel truck waiting for the plane in Seattle. The president of the airlines gave the okay, but they needed to stall for time in the air since the flight was only about 30 minutes gate to gate. As far as the passengers knew, they were being delayed because of mechanical difficulties. When she returned to his seat after securing his list of demands, he was wearing dark wraparound sunglasses. Cooper opened up his briefcase to show her what appeared to be a bomb, four red cylinders on top of a bigger base wrapped in black tape. During the flight, he was a perfect gentleman, besides the whole I'm hijacking this plane thing, and even tried to tip her for the bourbon and sodas. At 5.39 p.m. on November 24, 1971, they touched down in Seattle and all 36 passengers and two flight attendants got off. Two pilots, a flight attendant, and a flight engineer stayed on board. While the plane refueled, an employee from the airline handed him a backpack full of cash and the parachutes he asked for. But this is strange. Listen to this. Cooper turned down the military-issue parachutes and asked for civilian parachutes with ripcords he could pull by hand. Two hours later, they were back in the air, headed toward Mexico City with a planned stop for gas in Reno. He told the pilots to fly as low as possible, just under 10,000 feet, and as slow as possible. He also wanted the landing gear to stay deployed. The cabin had to stay depressurized, and the flaps set at 15-degree angles. About 20 minutes after takeoff, he lowered the stairs at the back of the 727 and bailed out somewhere over southwestern Washington. The plane landed safely in Reno, but Dan Cooper has never been found. So, did he survive the jump? The FBI says probably not, which is what you'd expect them to say, considering they've been searching for him with no luck for 50 years. If he did make it, it would have been a miracle. 
He jumped with two parachutes, but one of them was sewn shut because it was only used for teaching. A professional or even someone slightly paranoid would have checked on that before throwing themselves out of a plane thousands of feet in the air. So if he was an amateur, how did he survive a trek through the woods at night in the rain wearing only loafers, a suit, and a trench coat? Some theories say he had a partner waiting for him on the ground, but if that's true, how did he know precisely where to jump? He couldn't steer the parachute, and he wasn't coordinating with the flight crew. But if he didn't make it, where's his body? Is it possible that it could have stayed hidden for half a century? Where are the parachutes? Where's the money? In 1980, an eight-year-old boy vacationing with his family in Oregon found $5,800 of the D.B. Cooper money buried in a sandbar along the Columbia River on a beachfront called Tina Bar. The money was bundled together in several packets with rubber bands, but one of the packs was missing a few bills. Serial numbers linked the find to the hijacking, but did it wash up on that sandbar or was it buried there on purpose? In 2020, a civilian scientist named Tom Kay may have uncovered a new clue thanks to some algae found on the money. These specific diatoms were spring-blooming, which means the money was most likely dropped there months after Cooper's November heist. So when I hear that, my mind goes to an attempt to mislead investigators into thinking the drop zone was someplace it wasn't. What about you? The only other physical evidence ever recovered was his black clip-on JCPenney tie and tie clip, which he left behind on the plane. That got the microscope examination too, which is how they found some trace evidence of metals and rare minerals, leading some people to think he worked in a machine shop of some kind. And in 1978, off a logging road near Castle Rock, Washington, a hunter found a placard with instructions for lowering the stairs on a 727. So, who was this daredevil? Well, let's start with his name. It turns out the name D.B. Cooper was a case of mistaken identity in the press. In actuality, the only name he ever gave was Dan Cooper, which also happens to be the name of the main character in a French comic book series that was popular in 1971. The comic is all about a Royal Canadian Air Force test pilot named Dan Cooper. And a few weeks before the hijacking, an episode of the series featured a cover showing the character parachuting out of a plane. The thing that really makes this clue sing is the fact that those comics were never translated into English, so the FBI figured the hijacker Dan Cooper probably spent some time overseas or was from French Canada, although the flight crew pointed out that he didn't speak with an accent. Over the years, the FBI questioned hundreds of suspects, and more than 900 people have claimed to be the infamous D.B. Cooper. And one by one, they've all been eliminated. Here are two of the more likely suspects. Number one is Robert Rackstraw. He was a Vietnam War vet with Special Forces training. He was also a paratrooper and pilot with skills in explosives. Tom Colbert, an investigative reporter with decades of investigation into this case, firmly believes Robert is Cooper. But according to his book called The Last Master Outlaw, Robert was also secretly with the CIA. And because of that connection, the FBI has said he's not the guy. Could the long-running hunt for Cooper be an elaborate cover-up? 
Rackstraw was questioned after the hijacking, and he was coy about his involvement. He said things like, could have been, when asked if he was DB. But to his family, he bragged that he was the hijacker. He died in 2019. Check out Tom Colbert's website, dbcooper.com, to dive into the Robert Rackstraw rabbit hole. Richard McCoy was also a favorite suspect. Less than five months after Flight 305 was hijacked, he tried a copycat hijacking of United Airlines Flight 855, which was also a Boeing 727 with stairs in the back. He threatened the flight crew with a paperweight he said was a hand grenade and an unloaded pistol. And he demanded four parachutes and $500,000. His demands were met and he bailed out over Provo, Utah, the same way Cooper did. Except Richard McCoy wasn't quite as thorough about covering his tracks. He left behind the hijacking note and a magazine with his fingerprints on it. He was arrested, and in 1974, he was taken out in a battle with the FBI after he escaped from prison by driving a garbage truck through the front gates. This guy was a wild man, but witnesses say no, he's not Cooper, because he didn't look much like the hijacker they remembered, and he was in Utah for Thanksgiving the day after the Cooper heist. These days, Boeing 727s have a device that stops anyone from using the back stairs while the plane is in the air. Seems like that's something that should have been there from the beginning, I, I would say. But, but it's actually called the Cooper vein because of this case. We can also thank the mysterious hijacker for those peepholes in the cockpit doors so the flight crew can see what's going on in the cabin. But as for the true identity of Dan Cooper and whether or not he lived or died in that jump, well, that's still a mystery. Albeit one the FBI has sort of washed their hands of. In 2016, they officially closed their investigation, although they say they're still interested in any evidence or leads that might come up. And that's your recap. I'd love to hear your theories on this case. Drop them in the comments below so we can discuss. But don't go anywhere because Amy is coming up with your next mystery, The Body on Somerton Beach. If you thought the D.B. Cooper hijacking was a head-scratcher, well, hold on to your pearls, because this next case is absolutely baffling. This is the story of the unknown man. It all happened in Adelaide on a Tuesday evening in late November, at the beginning of the Australian summer in 1948. Around 7 o'clock that night, a couple went out for a stroll on Somerton Beach when they happened to notice a man laying on the sand with his head against a seawall. He was dressed in a suit with shiny new shoes, which was an odd outfit to wear to the beach, but okay. Now, as they walked by about 20 feet from him, they noticed his right arm go up, then fall back down like he was drunk and trying and failing to smoke a cigarette. They also noticed a swarm of mosquitoes surrounding his face, but he wasn't swatting them away. So he must be dead to the world not to notice them, they joked. They did not realize how right they were until the next morning when they saw a crowd clustered around him. He was still on the sand, leaning against the seawall just like he'd been the night before, except now there was a half-smoked cigarette on his collar. At the hospital, the doctor speculated that the culprit was probably heart failure and possible poisoning. He put his time of death at 2 a.m., but who was he? A look at the things he had on him wasn't very helpful. According to SmithsonianMeg.com, he was carrying tickets from Adelaide to the beach, a pack of chewing gum, 
some matches, two combs, and a pack of Army Club cigarettes containing seven cigarettes of another more expensive brand called Conceitas. He had Conceitas? Conceitas. He had no wallet and no cash and no ID. His clothes didn't offer up any clue to his identity either. The brand labels had even been cut off and one pocket had been repaired with an unusual variety of orange thread, according to the same article by Mike Dash. The autopsy, too, didn't reveal much more information about who this man might be or what could have killed him. The only unusual findings were about the size of his pupils, which were smaller than expected, and his spleen, which was about three times the normal size. His liver and stomach were congested with blood, which indicated poisoning, but how and why? His last meal looked like it had been a pasty, but the food hadn't been dosed. In fact, they couldn't find any trace of an actual poison in his body at all, leading some people to assume he'd been poisoned by that something that didn't leave any trace in the body. But they couldn't say for sure. They couldn't even positively explain how he died. But his body did offer up some clues about how he lived. He looked to be in his late 40s, but he had the legs of a man who might have been a ballet dancer or some other kind of athlete. His calf muscles were very pronounced, but his toes were misshapen, like he'd either been a dancer or accustomed to wearing high heels a lot. Even more baffling was the fact that no one in Adelaide or the rest of Australia seemed to know who he was. His fingerprints were passed to databases around the country with no leads. Then they resorted to circulating a picture of him taken in the morgue in hopes that someone might recognize him, but no one did. After a month and a half, the police expanded the search to area hotels, train stations, bus stations, and anywhere else that might have unclaimed luggage they could link to this man. On January 12, 1948, they got a lead. A brown suitcase had been abandoned in the cloakroom of the train station in Adelaide on November 30th, the same day the couple on the beach had first spotted that unknown man. But no one at the train station could remember anything about him, and the case itself had also been altered to hide the name of its owner. Most of the tags were torn out, but the name Keane, spelled K-E-A-N-E, or T. Keen, could be seen on three pieces of clothing, which were possibly left there on purpose to mislead anyone who might be looking. The other items in the suitcase were just as unexplainable. A spool of the weird orange thread they'd noticed on his pants was there. There was also a stencil kit, a table knife, and a coat that the Smithsonian article describes as stitched using a feather stitch used in America, but not in Australia. Hmm. So was this guy American? possibly, but there were no shipping or immigration records that matched his fingerprints. And as bizarre as this sounds, it gets stranger. Four months after he was found on the beach, another search through his things revealed a secret pocket sewn into the waistband of his pants. Inside was a tiny scrap of paper torn from a book with two typed words remaining on it. Tamam shed. That's probably my mangled Persian for it's ended. It also happens to be the last words in a 12th century book of Persian poetry that was popular in Australia at the time called The Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. It's about life and mortality. But what version did the scrap of paper come from? The words were in an elaborate font that they couldn't seem to match to any version of the book they came across. Three months later, they got another lead. On July 23rd, a man handed police a copy of the book. 
listen to this. He said that he'd found it on the floor in the backseat of his car in early December, right after the unknown man was found on the beach. At that time, his car happened to be parked near Somerton Beach. He'd been holding on to the book because he thought it belonged to a family member and the rest of his family thought it belonged to him. So no one thought anything of it until they saw the news about the missing book and its connection to this body on the beach. So when police examined it, they found a couple of clues. Yes, the scrap of paper had been torn out of that book and a phone number was written on the back of the book along with some barely discernible writing. When they called the number it belonged to, a nurse said she'd given the book to a man she knew during the war, a guy named Alfred Boxall. But the guy on the beach wasn't him. Alfred was still alive, and he still had the book she'd given him. When they questioned her again and showed her the picture of the man in the morgue, she insisted she didn't know who he was, but she looked so shaken that the police felt sure she did know something about him, but she just wasn't about to say. They still had one more clue to work, though. What was written on the book under her phone number? There were five lines of random letters with two lines crossed out. They figured it was some kind of code, so they sent it off to the Navy and published it in the press, hoping that someone could crack it. And no one could. The only other clues were found years later with the help of Jerry Feltis, who's a retired Australian policeman and author of a book about this case called The Unknown Man, and a professor from the University of Adelaide named Derek Abbott. So the professor discovered another body that was found with a connection to the same book. After World War II, a man named George Marshall died in Australia with a copy of the Rubaiyat next to him. He was a Jewish immigrant from Singapore, and his copy of the book proved to be just as rare and hard to find as the version linked to the man on Somerton Beach. And then author Jerry Feltis stumbled on something that had gone ignored in the police files. Another person who'd been walking on the beach on November 30th, 1948, reported seeing a man carrying another man on his shoulder near the water's edge, near the spot where the body was found. So did they actually see the killer bringing his victim to the beach? Today, 73 years later, we still don't know who that unknown man is, what killed him, or if it was foul play or suicide. Most people believe he was a spy, and the rare books found with both men were some kind of way to communicate. But what do you think? Let us know in the comments. Meanwhile, we've got one more bizarre mystery for you, although this one is supposedly solved. But is it? You be the judge. Take a listen to this recap and tell us who you think really took the Lindbergh baby. At about 9 p.m. on a rainy March 1st in 1932, a mysterious someone or someones made their way up to the second floor nursery and took Charles Augustus Lindbergh Jr. out of his crib while his parents and nanny were downstairs. The baby was the son of Charles Lindbergh and Anne Morrow. Just a quick history lesson about the two of them. Charles Sr. earned his fame by flying nonstop across the Atlantic Ocean from New York City to Paris. He was the first to make the flight alone in a single-engine plane called the Spirit of St. Louis. Anne was also an accomplished pilot and a writer. At the time this happened, they were a celebrity couple living in Hopewell, New Jersey, and Charles Jr. was their first child. When he disappeared, he was a little over a year and a half. The investigation and trial that followed has been called the crime of the century. The baby's nanny, a woman named Betty Gow, was the first to raise the alarm around 10 p.m. that night. 
When Charles and Anne rushed upstairs, they found the window open, mud on the floor, and a white envelope left on the sill. Inside was a detailed ransom note from the kidnapper giving the Lindberghs guided instructions for the return of their child. This is what it said. Dear Sir, have $50,000 ready, spelled R-E-D-Y. $25,000 in $20 bills, $15,000 in $10 bills, and $10,000 in $5 bills. After two to four days, we will inform you where to deliver the money. We warn you for making anything public or for the police. The child is in good care. Good was spelled G-U-T. The note and all the notes that would follow were found to have been written by the same person, who they believed to be of German descent, but had spent some time in America. Police also found two sets of footprints outside under the window. One set led them to a homemade ladder the kidnappers used to get up to the baby's room on the second floor. Part of it was broken, but whether that had happened when they climbed up or back down with the baby, they didn't know. There were no signs of any injuries in the nursery or outside, but the ladder itself was a clue. When experts examined it, they found no fingerprints, but determined that whoever made it knew what they were doing. Five days later, Charles Lindbergh got another ransom demand, postmarked from Brooklyn. This time, they demanded $70,000. Two days after that, on March 8, 1932, they got a third ransom letter instructing them to find a person to make the money drop. The kidnappers wanted to be told through a coded ad in the newspaper. The person that volunteered to be the go-between was a retired school principal from the Bronx named Dr. John F. Condon. They placed the ad in the paper as instructed, and the very next day they got another letter agreeing to Dr. Condon as the bagman. Further negotiations about the drop were traded back and forth through the newspapers using the code name JAFSI. Finally, by March 12th, 11 days after the baby was taken, Dr. Condon got yet another letter. This one was hand-delivered by a cab driver who said he got it from a mysterious stranger who he couldn't identify. The message led him to another set of instructions hidden under a stone a 100 feet away from a subway station. That letter, the sixth, if you're keeping count, told him to go to the Woodland Cemetery in the Bronx. A man named John would be waiting there. But Dr. Condon wasn't ready to just hand over the money. He wanted proof of life, and the mysterious John agreed to come back with proof. Four days went by with no more contact, despite the fact that Dr. Condon placed several ads in the newspapers asking to meet. Finally, on March 16th, the baby's pajamas and a seventh letter were delivered. Five days after that, Dr. Condon got the eighth letter telling him not to bother trying to find them. The whole thing had been planned for a year and they would never be caught. But still no money had changed hands and the baby had been gone for three weeks. On March 29th, the baby's nanny found the pacifier he had at the time he was taken. It had been left near the front gate of the Lindbergh house. And the next day, a ninth letter was delivered, threatening to increase the ransom to $100,000. Over the next two days and three more letters, Dr. Condon and the kidnappers negotiated the ransom back down to $50,000, $40,000 of it in gold certificates, and they made plans to make the drop on April 2nd, 1932. Once again, he met with John and gave him the money. In return, he got a receipt, which is very strange in and of itself, and a 13th note. 
This one said they'd find the baby the next day on a boat named Nellie anchored near Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts, but there was no boat and no baby. More than a month went by and no one knew what to do. The ransom had already been paid and there was no further contact with John, although Dr. Condon did say he'd recognize him if he ever saw him again. Then the unspeakable happened. On May 12, 1932, the Lindbergh baby was found partially buried and badly decomposed with a crushed skull. He was laying 45 feet from the highway near Mount Rose, New Jersey, less than five miles from his home. According to the coroner, he'd been dead for two months, probably as a result of blunt force trauma to the head. But could it have been caused, perhaps, by a fall from a broken ladder? First, I want to tell you about the investigation. What kind of monsters would do this to a baby? On May 13, 1932, President Hoover threw all the resources of the FBI and New Jersey law enforcement into answering that question. And they instructed banks, airports, gas stations, and other businesses in New York and surrounding states to keep an eye out for cash and gold certificates used for the ransom money. Almost a year later, some of it was spotted. 296 $10 gold certificates and one $20 gold certificate were deposited at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York on May 1st, 1933. A deposit ticket in the name of J.J. Faulkner on West 149th Street was discovered, but no such person existed at that address. Starting on August 20th, 1934 through September of that same year, 16 more gold certificates popped up most of them in neighborhood businesses in the vicinity of Yorkville and Harlem. Further investigation revealed that the man passing them fit Dr. Condon's description of the mysterious John. On September 18, 1934, a gas station attendant took down his license plate number after getting a $10 certificate as payment. It led back to Bruno Richard Hauptman of East 222nd Street in the Bronx. When he was arrested the next day, he had a $20 gold certificate from the ransom on him. He was a 35-year-old German immigrant who had been in America for about 11 years. He'd spent some time in prison for burglary charges. When they searched his house, they found a treasure trove of circumstantial evidence. More than $13,000 in gold ransom certificates were hidden in his garage. The wood from his attic matched the wood used to build the ladder the intruders left behind at the Lindbergh house. And Dr. Condon's phone number and address were written on a wall in a back closet. At the time the Lindbergh baby was taken, Bruno was married with a one-year-old son of his own. Up until the time the Lindbergh baby disappeared, he worked as a carpenter, but after March 1st, 1932, he started trading stocks and didn't take construction jobs anymore. It seemed like an open and shut case. But Bruno had a different story. He swore that his friend and former business partner left him a shoebox full of money when he went back to Germany in December 1933. His name was Isidore Fish. He died there not long after, on March 29, 1934, two years after the baby was taken. Bruno said he kept the money because he felt like Isidore owed it to him for a botched business deal. But what about the other incriminating evidence? What kind of explanation did he have for writing Dr. Condon's number on a closet wall? This is what he said. 
I must have read it in the paper about the story. I was a little bit interested and keep a little bit record of it. And maybe I was just on the closet and was reading the paper and put it down the address. I can't give you any explanation about the telephone number. That's weird, right? On February 13th, 1934, he was found guilty. And on April 3rd, 1936, at 8.47 p.m., he was electrocuted. But here's the strange part. He turned down an offer to commute his sentence to life in prison in exchange for a confession. He went to the electric chair, swearing he was innocent. His last words were, I am at peace with God. I repeat, I protest my innocence of the crime for which I was convicted. His wife tried to clear his name until she passed away in 1994 at the age of 95. A variety of alternate theories have been floated over the years, and many people, myself included, have wondered aloud how Bruno would have taken the baby all by himself. And remember, there were two sets of footprints found outside the house that night. Wouldn't it make more sense if this was a two-person job? Someone to hand the baby to the person waiting below on the ladder? But maybe something went wrong during the handoff. The ladder was found broken. Did that happen as the baby was being carried down? Was the baby's crushed skull the result of being dropped after the ladder broke? In which case, the Lindbergh baby was gone only seconds after he was taken. A man named Robert Zorn insists that not only is that theory more believable, but that his own father may have overheard a German neighbor named John Knoll plotting the kidnapping with Bruno Hauptmann and another man. And you can dive into that theory in Robert's book called Cemetery John, The Undiscovered Mastermind of the Lindbergh Kidnapping. Suffice it to say, the circumstantial evidence he lays out against John Knoll is pretty strong. Not only was his real name actually John, but he also physically resembled the mysterious cemetery John much more than Bruno Hauptmann. As the story goes, the three men were speaking German to each other, but he recognized the words Bruno and Englewood, which is where Anne Lindbergh's parents' house was and the couple had been staying there before the kidnapping. His handwriting also closely matched the writing on the ransom letters. And when the investigation against Bruno was heating up, John moved to his sister's in Detroit, then left the country until the trial was over and Bruno was convicted. In 2010, a letter from an FBI agent backed up this theory, calling John a grandiose, impulsive, thrill-seeking psychopath. But he maintained his innocence, and no one has ever been charged. In 1935, the police were only too willing to close the high-profile case after Bruno's arrest, even though the entire investigation up to that point had been concentrating on tracking down the gang of kidnappers, since no one believed it was the work of only one man. And may I point out that the money found in Bruno's house works out to be about one-third of the $50,000 ransom. So, the plot thickens. Let me know what your theory is on these cases in the comments below. We must discuss. Until then, that's your recap. Thanks for spending some time with us today. If you like getting twice the crime and half the time, you're going to want to hit subscribe and give this podcast a five-star rating. It only takes a second, but it really helps us get the word out about this show. Thank you so much for your support, and until next time, take care.